Welcome to the Dementia Researcher Podcast. Supporting early career researchers throughout the world and across the galaxy. Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast. I'm Associate Professor Yvonne Couch and I'm an Alzheimer's Research UK Fellow at the University of Oxford. Now, my normal field of interest is neuroimmunology, or how the brain, and in particular the brain's vascular system, copes with brain injuries like stroke. So today's topic is a little out of my comfort zone, but I found the background reading for this so fascinating, I ended up seriously considering a change of field. I'm joined on the podcast today by some amazing guests. We have researcher and author, Professor Christopher Mason. Professor Mason is one of the people behind the landmark twins study, that followed identical twins, Scott and Mark Kelly, while one spent a year on Earth and the other spent a year in space. He works with NASA and is a researcher at the Consortium for Space Genetics at Harvard Medical School. Chris has also written a fantastic book, The Next 500 Years, about our future in space. Next, we have Dr. E.O. Whiteley, space psychologist, director of the Center for Space Medicine at Mullard Space Science Laboratory at University College London. Dr. Whiteley worked with cosmonauts at the Gagarin Cosmonaut Training Center in Russia and at the European Astronaut Center in Germany, designing training for astronauts. He has written a book for researchers and practitioners, Toolkit for a Space Psychologist to Support Astronauts in Exploration Missions to the Moon and Mars. Her latest papers focus on how to detect invasive fatigue in astronauts, and she explores our inner space whilst we explore outer space with the aim to develop our abilities and realize our potential right from birth. Finally, we welcome a guest many of you have heard from before, the wonderful Professor Henrik Zetterberg. Professor Zetterberg is Professor of Neurochemistry and Neurodegenerative Disease at University College London and the University of Gothenburg. He is a leading expert in fluid-based biomarkers in dementia, and in 2020, he discovered a new method to detect the disease about two decades before significant symptoms are present. In today's podcast, we will be exploring the effect of space travel on the brain. This is an enormous topic. So to break it down into manageable chunks, we're going to talk about the five major hazards of space travel. Radiation, gravity, isolation, environment, and distance. Okay, hello everyone, and thank you so much for finding the time to join us today. So let's leap off with a bit of background on you guys, because whilst most of our listeners might be familiar with research, research in space is a bit next level. So could I maybe start by asking how you found your way into your particular research field? Chris, how about you go first? Happy to. Well, thanks for having me. I really have been always curious about genetics and space since I was a kid. And when I actually first started my lab at Cornell, the very first grant I, write, I wrote, you know, because you get some money and they say, go forth and, and be productive and write grants and papers and discover things is generally what the university tells you to do. I actually wrote to NASA and said, you know, there's never been, there's lots of precision medicine and genomics being done for patients on earth. But what do we know about really the changes when you're in space and I, arguably one of the highest risk environments for any human being to, to go into? So I really 
uh, sent them a proposal and said, I, I don't need any money. I just needed to get samples. And they said, well, we don't, we don't have a lot of bank, you know, purified blood samples or viably frozen cells, not yet, but they just started talking about expanding that work. And so then they an announced that they were looking for ideas for a twin study. And I said, oh, great. I've already got the, the grant written up and sent it in. And we were one of the 10 teams selected there. So it was really, and I've done a lot of follow-up work since, but that was kind of the first jump into the field and led to a lot of great collaborations on looking at the molecular side, the genetic side, cognitive changes, everything we could measure about the human body in space. Excellent, thank you. And we're definitely gonna leap in and, and quiz you about the twins a little bit later in the podcast. Um, Ia, how about you? Thank you, thank you for letting me join this uh, lovely round table discussion. I have uh, started also from very young age. I wanted to fly and be in space and see how it looks from above. I couldn't quite get in into flight school because they were not selecting women at the time. Uh, so I thought, uh, not a big loss, I'll jump with a parachute instead. And <laughs> so and then it went from there. Um, I knew that I need to take little steps. So I went to study how pilots, um, how to assist pilots in, uh, in absorbing information in short amount of time and without kind of making mistakes in the process. And I thought that will help me to understand what people are like in extreme environments. And I was working with military crew in Australia. They were converting C-130J Hercules. So this is like a massive cargo plane designed by Lockheed Martin from an older analog version with dials to a display. So like glass uh, cockpits full of screens. And um, I wanted to understand why, what are they thinking? You know, what are they doing? Because my, still the pertinent question is that how do people know what to do and make the right decisions at the time in extreme environments when they're in absolute pressure, they've got, um, you know, the time is, is always on them kind of. And one thing that I've learned as a pilot, um, as a, pilot of a light aircraft is that you always have to stay ahead. So every pilot that you speak with, and in fact, every cosmonaut and astronaut are always ahead of their flight. So they know and they pre-calculate the situations that are ahead of them. And that's how they are able to stay ahead. And of course, when the crisis happened that, for example, they haven't um, you know, able to foresee they, they have so much um, training that behind them that uh, I've heard from astronauts saying that when they walk towards the, the rocket, they feel like superheroes because they think there is nothing, absolutely nothing that actual <laughs> situations, real situation can throw at them that instructors haven't because they, <laughs> they you know, mm -hmm. literally take every aspect in uh, training to consider what, what could happen and will never happen, but they throw it at them anyway. So they feel prepared. And I think that state of preparedness is what I'm fascinated about. You know, how can people be so present, you know, in the moment, how do they get to that state? And that's what I wanted to study. And from pilots, I went to apply for various research in space and that's how I'm doing this work. That is absolutely amazing. I'm very jealous that you've jumped out of a plane. I really want to do that at some point. And <laughs> flying less so, I think my brain is not, I'm not, I don't think far enough ahead to be a good pilot. I'd be terrible, but I would like to jump out of a plane. I think that would be incredibly fun. So Henrik, I know you mostly focus on dementia. Um, how did you become interested in this topic? 
Well, I got an email. That's the that's the that's the whole explanation. So basically, what we have done is that we have um, I, I sort of adapted uh, adopted something uh, called I call opportunistic study design. So uh, we have developed biomarkers for brain diseases for for many years, and uh, many of the methods we developed were uh, they were sensitive enough for cerebrospinal fluid samples, but not good enough for blood. But then eventually, since ten years, we have slowly w- worked ourselves against um, to. to towards uh, having uh, the analytical sensitivity to be able to measure uh, uh, proteins that come from neurons in blood. Uh, and then when these assays came about, I, I started to think about different um, scenarios where we could look at brain stress in different uh, ways. And so we have studied uh, the dynamics of these biomarkers in boxing, in mixed martial arts, in uh, soccer or football when you head a ball. Uh, we have looked at um, uh, breachers who, who break into uh, rooms using high explosive gears and, and such things where the, bra- the brain could theoretically be impacted by different um, uh, forces. Uh, but I never thought about space research until uh, a neurologist who is an expert on on how the brain reacts to to, um, uh, microgravity, how um, uh, he basically emailed me and said that he had access to uh, samples from Russian cosmonauts who had been on uh, the International Space Station and he had the samples before and after they they came back uh, from this. And his idea was basically to to look at what uh, microgravity would do to uh, to brain health, uh, and he had um, clinical measures that after you land from the, this extended time at the International Sta- Space Station, the, these uh, cosmonauts were uh, there for almost six months. And then cognitive uh, scores are quite um, uh, poor, uh, and it takes time to recover. It takes time to recover the whole body, but it really takes time to recover uh, brain functions or function also. Um, and basically, he had access to these samples, and he asked us if we wanted to measure them. And what we did then is that we, we measured the biomarkers we have developed for neural injury, astrocytic activation, and um, also some other proteins that relate to, to aggregation of some of the aggregation-prone proteins, uh, for example, beta amyloid that forms form, form clumps in the, in the brain in Alzheimer's disease. And we got quite striking findings because all these five cosmonauts uh, display the same biomarker changes in their blood, indicating that either neurons were injured and or uh, the clearance mechanisms uh, of of, um, breakdown products from neuronal metabolism that they didn't work up in microgravity as they should. Uh, and uh, that is, uh, it's, 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 these are pilot data, I have to admit, but it looked quite interesting. And um, I think they have, they, they, this could be of relevance also when we talk about space tourism and such things. Definitely. And that, I think you've highlighted one of the really interesting sort of future directions in, in this field for me in the, we need to get more samples and we need to, to figure out what's going on with these people when we get into space. But technolo- like I can go down the corridor and stick someone in the arm with a needle and get blood, but doing that in space, I think, is, is really challenging. And getting things like CSF, which would be amazing, is going to be, I think, really difficult going forward. But let's get right down to business and start with some of the hazards that people might experience when they travel into space. 
Um, we're going to talk about radiation and gravity first. So, Chris, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the kinds of radiation astronauts might expect to experience when they travel into space? Yes. So it is not pleasant for the body in terms of the amount of uh, radioactive particles and high energy particles zooming through your body. It is equivalent to generally having about, say, three to four chest x-rays per day if you're in low Earth orbit. It's kind of the way we often think about it. And that is, uh, so it gives you then an effective radiation dose uh, over time, which is often uh, measured in uh, millisieverts. And just to give you an example, uh, when Scott Kelly was in space for one whole year, it was about 146 millisieverts of radiation. And so uh, that's that's a fair amount. Actually, if you go to Mars, though, go to Mars and back, it would probably be around 1,200 millisieverts. So it might be anywhere from eight to 10 times more radiation. A lot of that is because as soon as you leave the low Earth orbit, you're outside of the Van Allen belts. You don't have the protection of Earth's magnetosphere to kind of shield you. And so even though you're getting more radiation in space than you would on Earth, uh, you know, it, it is... Um, you know, it, it's not any, nothing would hold a candle to what you get to say Mars and back or even some of the lunar missions. And so what that does, is, you know, when you get irradiated, uh, I mean, but to, to be fair, you can you can get, um, you know, the equivalent of this is if you say, well, how much would I normally get if I'm on Earth? Uh, the background radiation, you know, from what we've seen, if, if you could, for example, go up in space, the Inspiration4 crew we just looked at. So if you spent about three days in space that for them, they were at a slightly higher altitude. It was about the equivalent of nine months being on Earth in terms of how fast you accumulate that amount of radiation just, just on Earth. Because again, there's uranium in the rocks, there's radiation all around us. The Van Allen belts don't protect everything or the atmosphere, but but it is, so what we see for the, the manifestation of that radiation in space is you can actually see breaks in the DNA coming out of in the blood, also in urine for the astronauts. There's uh, a modified uh, nucleotide called 8-oxoguanosine, which is a, a damaged base, one of the one of the letters of our genetic code. You can see it come out in the urine of astronauts. We've looked at 59 astronauts. It happens to all of them in flight. You can actually see the body sort of ejecting these damaged bases. You can see it in the blood as well. So we know that they're being irradiated, but we can also see it in, in the way their genes respond. So a lot of the, the activity inside of the blood cells, you can see that the DNA repair networks all activating and quickly coming to life to say, aha, I have to repair this broken DNA, which again, we do all the time on earth anyway. It's just, it's much more active. And for the most part, it does a pretty good job. We actually have looked at measures of what's called clonal hematopoiesis, or where you can have clones of blood, uh, clone, clones of mutated cells that are in your bone marrow and your blood, and you can see if they change. We've actually seen that they went, some of them went down even in space. So some of the mutations that Scott had got a little bit better in space. Some of it's because he's you know, working out every morning, eating very healthy, getting a good night's sleep, and in some ways having uh, a, a bit more of a healthy lifestyle. And his telomeres got a little longer in space, which we've now seen in 11 other astronauts. It seems like an unusual, you know, usually longer telomeres means that you're younger. And so in some cases, we think it's almost a, this low dose radiation is kind of priming the immune system, priming cells that were close to being dead to been being kind of uh, shuffled out of the body. And so it's a really, it's both good and bad. You're being irradiated, but it might not be at a necessarily too dangerous level or speed. And but we're still, you know, studying this with additional astronauts. That's a quick summary of, of, of those findings. Well, long term, just to jump in on that one, long term, if you're being irradiated that much, how, how many of these astronauts have been studied sort of over a really long period of time, sort of like tens of 20 sort of years length of time? Is this gonna affect their, you know, chances of getting cancer or, or things along those lines? 
Great question. So far, the answer seems to be mostly no. They, they do have a slight enrichment for some more rare cancer types, but there's really, you know, there's only 600, just over 600 people have ever been to space. About a third of them are Russians. So we don't have their data uh, and we don't have that much genetic data on even the astronauts we have. So, so far, and they're also very healthy. They're a really healthy stock. But what, what's really interesting is we're now starting to see more civilian crews go up that are what normal Joes and Janes going up into space like we just saw. And so we did the same protocol for the Inspiration4 crew that we did for the twin study. We're doing the same for a lot of the Axiom missions coming up. So I think we'll start to have a better sense of that. You know, if you're just a normal person, not a you know demigod that's going into space because you're in crazily healthy and, and fit, what will that look like? So we'll begin to understand that in the coming, I think, years. So if we bring it back to the brain, Henrik, on a cellular level, what do you think these kinds of radiation and these kind of stresses are going to be doing to our bodies, but also to our brains? What, what's going to go on in terms of your brain cell health? Yeah, in terms of irradiation, I'm not that worried about uh, the brain, to be honest, although, of course, this is uh, it, it, it can have the same effects on, uh, on DNA integrity, as, as Chris just mentioned. But I think, actually, that what we saw, if I interpret the, the data, again, remembering that it was just on five uh, people, but with the same pattern, to me, it looks like the clearance mechanisms of waste um, uh, products from the brain into the blood are disturbed. Uh, it's uh, The mechanism is not clear, but uh, in the brain we have something uh, that called the glymphatic system that operates to remove metabolites uh, from, from the brain. And that glymphatic system is dependent on a diurnal variation and also passive and slow flows of fluids. Um, so the interstitial fluid that bathes the neurons is cleared throughout some almost like paravascular close to the brain vessels, uh, the blood vessels in the brain. Uh, there, uh, the interstitial fluid is flowing, bringing metabolites from the brain and emptying itself in to the bloodstream. And it looks like uh, uh, when people have landed after having been in space, it looks like this system starts to work again. And then all the, these molecules that are brain derived, they come out from the brain, giving higher blood concentrations. If uh, these proteins build up in the brain and accumulate, there is a risk of getting these type of protein accumulations that we see in neurodegenerative uh, disease, but no one has seen a clear increased incidence of dementia or something like that in astronauts, uh, at least not to my knowledge, although acute uh, cognitive dysfunction has been seen. So I, I would say that I think this is more related to, uh, to, uh, to being in micro, uh, at microgravity than uh, irradiation. And uh, it's also, uh, it could also have to do with disrupted diurnal rhythm and sleep patterns. Because one fascinating feature of this lymphatic system is that it opens up and becomes most active in deep sleep. And um, uh, if, if you don't have the possibility of having prolonged times of deep sleep, which can be hard in, in space, then um, uh, th this could potentially impair the clearance of these proteins. Deep sleep is super important. Uh, I mean, if you, if you don't sleep at all for one or two nights, that will work. You will work, but it, you won't feel that well. But after three or four or five nights, then you start to get problems. And um, uh, sleep is not an easy thing for, for um, 
uh, astronauts. And of course, there are things to uh, help with medications to, to make that work better. Uh, but if that is also in combination with microgravity and uh, fluid dynamics, then uh, that is a little bit more complicated. But potentially one could uh, do something about it, which is I, one reason for why uh, both NASA and the Russian Space Agency have been interested in this. It sounds like a perfect storm of awful things to be happening to your brain all at once. But we will definitely talk about lymphatics and sleep more in a little bit because I want some of Ia's opinions on that as well. But we know that um, radiotherapy, so if you have radiotherapy for cancer, we know that that can affect you cognitively if you have that sort of over a long period of time. And Ia, I'd be keen to get your opinion on this. If we've got serious changes in areas of the brain, like the hippocampus that might affect memory and areas of the brain that might affect risk-taking, what, what kind of behavioral changes might we expect in, in people who are going to space for prolonged periods of time? I wanted to comment on what Henrik was saying regarding oh. sleep, and that's related to memory. So I've been fortunate to participate in the training rather than a study that is conducted with uh, Russian cosmonauts. And uh, part of the training is uh, sleep deprivation, which is um, extended, so over several days, 72 hours. And uh, um, what happens is that once, of course, uh, there were medical, uh, some of the medical studies been done, but I have not participated in that. And of course, the date is closed. <laughs> Uh, and uh, but what was interesting is that what we saw that once people started to um, have less and less sleep, such as accumulated fatigue over time, their memory deteriorated, the short term memory, and um, they were unable to follow simple instructions. So, for example, if you are in an accident or an emergency, they will only for sure be able to follow one step rather than, for example, a three-step procedure. However, their long-term memory kicks in. So for example, if it's an emergency and they need to perform three steps that they do, that they remember, that just springs up quite quickly because it's uh, also a body memory, such as of what they do in training. <clears throat> so that's interesting um, that, the, of course, the memory has a big impact, especially short-term memory when you have to react to things and you have to work as a team and know who is doing what is doing and little bursts of um, sort of chemicals to set you off, for example, because you are in an emergency could help you, but very short term and it exhausts you faster as well. So that would be my um, comment on the memory. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And like you said earlier, you've, you've almost got muscle memory for so many different protocols that you've got to go through. But if you have to sort of spontaneously react to something random, if you're sleep deprived, you're going to be much, almost much worse at, at doing that. And I think that's something that's going to be really interesting in terms of training people going forwards. So we know that radiation is a serious threat, but for me, this is where it gets interesting. So the perceived risk level for radiation exposure is seems to be different for different individuals. So women are more prone to develop things like cancer than men. Smoking and obesity will alter your risk. Age is going to play a factor. All kinds of other things are going to play into how radiation affects your body. So, Chris, does this mean we need to really carefully select crews that we send on longer space missions? And 
what factors do you think might need to be considered? And, you know, do you think the current selection process that we have is the right one? Like you said that we're selecting demigods. Do you think we should be selecting demigods? To make space more accessible to people, we will inevitably have to broaden the scope. And if the starship starts sending people to Mars, 100 people at a time, in the next 10 years, in theory, uh, it will probably include a lot of a, a broader range of people very quickly. So I think we, the, what's currently used is a very rigorous procedure that includes, you know, the most healthy people uh, and, and that it pass a, a wide battery of tests. But it, to your point earlier, women have a, uh, at least based on the NASA recommendations, uh, have a lower acceptable limit uh, for radiation exposure. And a lot of this is based on data from survivors of Nagasaki and Hiroshima from some of the atomic bomb, um, atomic bombs that were unfortunately dropped there. Uh, but we you know, learned a lot about what was the incidence of cancer as a function of age and sex. And that, you know, but there are you know, new mitigation strategies that you could uh, deploy. So radiation countermeasures are not just tablets now, you could even have epigenetic therapies that can uh, be used to prime sort of your DNA repair genes is something that DARPA is looking at, uh, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency here in the United States. So there, there's there's work being done to try and think about other ways to address that challenge for sure. Uh, but but it is uh, going to be harder to make sure that people that are you know older or more obese or you know William Shatner just made went, made it past the Carmen line and you know he's ninety, you know so there there's a much broader range of people both older and younger going into space in the past ten years. But I think it's a good thing. It's like it's like any clinical trial. You start with a small group of people. You learn what you can. You learn a lot more when you broaden it to phase two and phase three clinical trials. We're basically in the clinical trial of humanity, and the trial is space. You know, so we're just in the early stages of figuring out the response to a broader range of humans. Uh, but but we're learning for sure a lot. I think even actually to to um, Dr. Zetterberg's point, some of the, the the peptides we can see even in exosomes, we started to see like in the brain, how it clears proteins in the brain. Some of them showed up in the blood of Scott Kelly when he got back to earth, which is the first time we've ever seen brain derived peptides show up in exosomes that were in the peripheral blood uh, for any of the controls or other astronauts. So we can start to at least measure some of these changes the, you know, and, and radiation risk and get dosimetry down to the cellular and molecular level, which is helpful to measure radiation risk. So uh, but it's going to be broader. It already is broader, and I think it will continue to broaden, which is good for the clinical trial of humanity in space. Definitely. Incorporating a lot of noise, I think, is good if you've got a decent enough signal. Although I'm now extremely distracted because you said exosomes, which is one of my favorite words ever. So now I know my in into this field. I'm going to leap. I'm going to find someone who does exosome research in space, and that's it. I'm ruined. I'm sorry. We won't, but there's only one paper. We have one paper. I think it's the Excellent. only one. So it, right. I'm paper number. I'm paper number two. That's it. I'm sorted for the next year and a half at least. Um, but you mentioned William Shatner there. So, Henry, I'm going to jump on you for this answer. William Shatner's 90. Um, do you think that cells in an old person's brain are going to be different and how are they going to cope? So you mentioned the lymphatic system and that the drainage might be different in space. How is that system different in an elderly person? And are they going to cope with the changes of space different to a younger person? If we start with radiation, actually, uh, medically, we often start, we, we often allow older people to get more radiation because you won't um, have that much time to accumulate additional damage. So it's, um, uh, so that is, uh, so, so perhaps it's good to, 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 uh, so, so yeah, from a radiation perspective, I don't think we have to be very careful with, with the, the older people. But from um, 
brain physiology perspective, uh, older brains at group level work a little bit less efficiently with clearing, for example, debris or metabolites from the, from the tissue. And that is mostly related to um, stiffening of the small blood vessels of the brain. And uh, they really make up this um, uh, most important part of the glymphatic system, which involves dynamics in how well the, these uh, paravascular spaces alongside the vessels open up when you enter deep sleep and that type of flow um, from the brain interstitial fluid into the blood uh, starts. So I, I think uh, from that perspective, older brains could be a little bit more vulnerable to to changes imposed on the brain by microgravity and also this type of uh, uh, additional disturbance of the uh, circadian rhythm and, and diurnal variation in, uh, in sleep patterns and so. And I mean, that happens with normal aging also. The sleep gets more uh, disrupted and that has been in some individuals and that has been hypothesized to be a little bit of a risk factor for neurodegenerative disease. Um, but... Um, you know, I, I, I'm actually not su super worried about um, uh, the, I, I, about older uh, people in space uh, because of um, uh, this uh, fact that they might uh, have a short li life to live and, and uh, might not have those. Be I mean, the, the brain changes in old age are not super acute, but you, of course you have to be cardiovascular and muscularly fit. Uh, that, that will be important. Um, I more more think about younger people who, and if it becomes common to to go and stay up um, uh, longer and or having one thing I would be very interested in is to do a study to examine if long longer time periods in space uh, are better or worse for the brain and this type of brain dynamics changes that then um, uh, which one is worst? I think we we now have the tools to to determine that, and I think we should study that. Yeah, and I think if we are thinking about going, well, I know that there's the, the mission to go back to the moon, and I think if we are thinking about going to Mars, knowing more about how these long-term exposures affect, affect the body and affect the brain, I think are really important. So you touched briefly on, uh, well, you touched a lot on fluid dynamics and the effects of the potential effects of gravity and microgravity. So Chris, can you give our listeners a brief primer on the differences between gravity, microgravity, and zero gravity, and when the astronauts or the cosmonauts might experience each of them? Sure, so there, there's often a, um... There's a, a big debate uh, in, in whether we should even call something uh, microgravity because we don't have a way to measure the exact amount of gravity you're getting. We just know that as you move away from a, a large objects, you have a, the, NASA calls it altered gravitational fields you know, often instead of microgravity because we don't have a gravinometer or that we can say you have, you know, 68 gravitons that you now have, right? So there's no, and if anything, it's actually the, the, the experience of microgravity is just a continued falling towards earth. And so, uh, you still have Earth's gravity very close to you relative to the size of the object. You actually have uh, really almost the same amount of gravity that your body experiences. It's just that because you're falling towards Earth, you have the experience of, of microgravity or zero gravity. But um, I know several people at NASA who don't even use the term microgravity because they they so despise the imperfection of the term. Uh, because, again, it's a huge object. It's a planet, right? You're actually not that far from it. You still have all the gravity. You're just falling towards that planet. And so that experience is just a consistent falling, which, of course, you can get in a parabolic flight. Uh, where you have the exact same feeling of zero gravity, but for 15 seconds at a time, uh, but but then you get it back again very quickly. So I think 
there is they're used synonymously though zero gravity and microgravity are often used in conjunction but but fundamentally when you think of where your body is in the universe you have almost all the same amount of gravity it's just that you're falling towards a large object uh which is what we call zero or microgravity uh, so it's kind of a funny misnomer that's used broadly i'd say yeah we're putting we're putting labels on something which is not currently measurable which is you know right. a very sciencey thing to do we must label everything so i'm going to come back to you in a minute to talk about the long and short term effects of gravity on the body but yeah, I'd be keen to know your thoughts on the psychological effects of gravity. So you're going up in space and everyday tasks are suddenly done in, I want to say, almost like an extra dimension. So you're suddenly having to learn how to put things down and pick things up and drink things in, in midair. How quickly do you adapt to that? Like what stresses does that kind of environment put on, on a person psychologically? How do they adapt to and and how quickly do they sort of de-adapt when they, when they get back to us? Well, I had a fortunate to, to, to speak with um, cosmonauts and astronauts about arriving to the station to SS. And uh, one, about a week, for, for about a week, depending on individual um, physiology, that it takes time to, to adapt. So, of course, all your fluid shifts up, so you feel like you have a cold. And, uh, and your senses, like, for example, tasting buds, um, um, because of your tongue, enlarges as well. So it's like you're having a cold, a head cold, essentially. And you have to still perform at the top <laughs> of your ability. And you might be hit with this for the first time in your life. And it's continuous. So, of course, it is uh, straining, but they have a larger goal in mind. And as I mentioned before, you know, they're, they're looking to perform their best. And they trained and probably dreamed of this since they were very, very young. And so one interesting um, interaction that I found is that when the crew, when they first arrive and they're trying to reach something. So, for example, if you go with your hand to reach something and it should be pulled by gravity here. So they always overshoot upwards. So when they're trying to reach something ahead and. And of course, your brain adjusts like, like the experiment of riding the bike with the reverse wheel, yeah, with, with a regulation of direction is different or the reverse. So it's the same thing is that it takes time to adapt, but then you do. <clears throat> and there are many functions like that that you do and then you just love them because they are different to Earth. So they, they become like, um, you know, children. They, they try to understand how it works and what to do and they play with that. Um, and that's quite humor. I found that I found that in the military and in space personnel, they have a lot of humor. And that's what saves the day and tension and difficulties. So they always find the way to make a laugh of something. And uh, that what helps psychologically to adapt as well. And of course, more experienced cosmonauts and astronauts make jokes on the younger ones. So there, <laughs> there are, um, you know, little tricks. I think, I think what you what you said there is really important. I think having a sense of humor and having some innate curiosity about how things work. And I think that's with gravity. So with you can study so many extreme environments on Earth, like Chris mentioned, um, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and we've got sort of areas of very high radiation on Earth. We've got extreme isolated environments like the North and the South Pole, where people can go and experience that kind of isolation. You can't really do microgravity or zero gravity. You can't really do that here. So that's the sort of thing that they're going to experience for the first time when they're up there and have to figure it out along with all the other stuff. So I think that's 
the fact that they've got to do that on top, but the description uh, of them as demigods, I don't think is, is unwarranted. Um, but one of the major effects that gravity is going to have is on the fluids of the body. And Henrik, you've already mentioned the glymphatics a couple of times, but take it back to basics for our listeners. Can you tell us how fluids like blood and lymph are normally kept in their various compartments? Yeah, in the brain, you mean? Yes. Yes, yes. So, so um, one could... Um, uh, there are a couple of important um, fluids that are a little bit specific to the brain. And one is cerebrospinal fluid, which is a, f- a filtrate of plasma. And that fluid is made inside the brain by something called the choroid plexus. It, it, it looks like a, a, a grapes almost. And they produce from the, the blood is going into these grapes and then it's filtrated and released on the brain side into the ventricles of the brain, this clear fluid, which to is composed of um, blood proteins. Uh, This fluid is communicating freely and moving around uh, in the brain uh, with the brain interstitial fluid. And that dynamics is driven by the heartbeats. So if you do, if you're in a neurosurgical setting and you open up the skull, you will see the brain move, pulse synchronously. You can also feel that uh, if you have been out late at night and the morning after, you can feel that those movements of the brain uh, the day after. And it's, it's really, that, that really drives the dynamics of, and moves the fluids around and mixes the, the, the interstitial fluid around the neurons with the, the, the cerebrospinal fluid of the ventricles. This fluid is also then um, uh, driven, pulse synchronously, slowly along the spinal cord down to the lumbar sac, and there we can sample it. And then it also goes up over the hemispheres and empties itself into the, the venous blood system to something called um, um, uh, granulations, uh, arachnoidal granulations. That's one part of, the, of this uh, 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 clearance mechanism. This fluid doesn't bring nutrients, but it really removes waste products. Then we have, the, the, of course, the blood vessels of the brain that brings oxygen and nutrients, uh, much like, uh, like uh, the blood is delivering these important um, uh, things to other cell types of the brain. Uh, but the, the, the coolest thing with uh, fluid dynamics of the brain is this lymphatic system, because it has been known and described like in the 80s. But Mike Nedegaard, who, who works in Denmark and, and, and the USG, sort of rediscovered it in rodent models and she really characterized it deeply with her team and then what she could see was that if you follow a rodent and uh, um, uh, fluid dynamics in a rodent brain over 24 hours uh, in the in the um, uh, light dark cycle you can see that there are spaces opening up in the brain along the blood vessels when uh, animals go to sleep, and especially when they enter this type of deep sleep that has um, that is so important to humans. And this is really something that seems to move fluids a lot along the brain parenchyma. So then we have uh, cerebrospinal fluid, which covers the hemispheres and also are in the ventricles. But this subarachnoidal cerebrospinal fluid, which lies on the brain, when you enter deep sleep, it is sucked into the brain. And then uh, when you wake up, 
it moves along these blood vessels and empties itself into the blood system on, on the venous side outside the brain. Uh, and uh, th th this really seems to be a, an important um, and evolutionary conserved system. And I think this explains, to some extent, I don't think it explains all about why sleep is so important, but it exp explains a large part of why deep sleep is important. And why this has been um, evolved to, to, to work like this, I do not know. Uh, because, I mean, sleeping must be a little bit dangerous if you are at the savannah yeah. or so. But, but you really, we really need it. And you can be awake, as he has said, uh, one night. You can be awake two nights. But if you do not get um, any sleep for three or four uh, uh, then I mean that's torture and then you will experience acute brain function breakdown that's really uh, the case I do not know if anyone has described this in space on any of the cosmonauts or astronauts that have been up there uh, I'm ignorant of that but perhaps someone else knows well, one question for deep sleep how to get deep sleep you need at least uh, how much sleep do you need to get to deep sleep I guess if you can clarify I guess it's such an important question from a personal perspective also you need four hours that and a healthy hours. brain. If you are sleep deprived, I mean, if people are, and perhaps this is a little bit individual also. So perhaps there are people who need less. And, uh, some people, I, I mean, most likely there, it is like this. But if you are healthy and you are sleep deprived, I mean, many people who listen to this will have had such experiences and some have uh, perhaps kids and, and can't sleep at all, they think, but at least you get some hours and, and that's enough. If you are sleep deprived and uh, you what, what happens to the sleep um, uh, patterns is that you prioritize deep sleep. So uh, you dive down into deep sleep, which is dreamless. Uh, so the brain or the body prioritizes the deep sleep to get that clearance mechanism. So I, I don't think it's dangerous to be sleep deprived. Uh, I don't think it's acutely dangerous as long as you get uh, uh, three, four, five hours. I mean, that, that, then I think you can uh, you can live with it. But but you will have a little bit of a problem with um, with uh, synaptic homeostasis and making new memories and such things. And perhaps during these if you have experienced uh, prolonged times with sleep deprivation, often people, when they talk about those times, they it is a little bit tunnel-like. They, they, it is not. Uh, it, it can actually be that you have a, quite vague memories from um, what happened during that time, and that you also can experience in deep depression uh, and psychiatric diseases. Chris, I was going to jump in and ask you. What whether you knew anything about what happens to the circadian? Because I read somewhere that um, astronauts experience up to sixteen sunrises and sunsets a day. So what happens to the circadian rhythm of of someone who's in space? And and is there any way of like helping them get regular sleep in that maybe isn't drugs? We do see a lot of the certainly the gene expression patterns. Look at what genes are going up or down. Which normally they're very beautifully cyclic. You can see you know these sort of waves crashing on the cognitive shore in a very regular fashion. But it's it's almost completely disrupted, at least in a, a gene expression level. They they do in terms of we see a lot of the genes uh, not as cyclical, or they're, they're adjusting, or they're differentially regulated. But the astronauts do they sleep? It's like in a vertical kind of closet, and they close the door, and they they try to as best as they can simulate uh, at least the sleeping part of the day is is dark, and they work a lot in the day. So as much as possible, the you know their day is organized to try and keep it in something of a normal cadence. But they also have uh, lighting that is used on the space station that changes the frequency of the light to simulate uh, what is the light patterns uh, over the course of the day, which also impacts uh, cognitive function and health. 
So we we um so some of those are just being developed and deployed on the space station, not in all the modules yet, but uh, there's even some that's being put into office buildings, right? Like you want to have a different shift of red light and blue light at different parts of the day to try and simulate whether you should be waking up or sleeping. And so I think uh, it's not good if you want to pull an all-nighter, like if you have to jump into work for a 14-hour day, you want to have all the lights on maximum. But um, but but if you you know want a normal life that is you know, it's eight to 10 hours of working on something or maybe six to 10 hours or maybe four if you're having a, if you're going to the beach in the afternoon, you you want to have some semblance of what it looks like on earth because of course we evolved here, but um, uh, they, they do what they can on the space station to match that. Yeah, and I think there's always going to be those problems with things like jet lag because presumably people are going to the space station from all over the place. So their rhythms are going to be all over the place anyway. Um, Henrik touched on sort of uh, depression and, and things that can be affected by this change in, in circadian rhythms. And yeah, I'd be keen to get your insight on whether you think these changes in sleep patterns can affect the emotional state of, of people going in space and whether we might expect different changes on longer space missions. And, and do you think there's anything we can do about that? Yes, of course. I mean, as soon as we are sleep deprived and we know that if you have small children, your uh, patience goes down radically. <laughs> and, uh, and hence, uh, when we are unable to function happily then um, in our daily life, because we just uh, have to pull through rather than enjoy the day and having time to enjoy uh, you know, a conversation or a thought or appreciate where you are. If those moments are missing, then our emotional well-being goes down as well. And yes, of course, it, it, in Mars 500 study, which I've been also participating as a researcher, you could see that the crew, after a while, um, they've exhausted, I guess, the conversation. And of course, that was specifically designed to observe what happens to, to the crew. And we know that in Antarctic missions as well, because they're very much uh, an analog to um, long duration travel. And uh, so the best thing is that the crew prepares and they know about it, they talk about it. The best way to be prepared is to converse about who uh, is like, how every one of us is like in, in what kind of situation. And uh, the book I published, uh, what toolkit for a space psychologist, actually maps out the situations and categories and factors that the crew can go over in a training scenario in preparation for uh, duration, long duration missions uh, or a short duration, but critical missions. And they're able to discuss it and see what kind of reactions they're expecting from others and also think through what are they going to be like. So by talking through it and thinking through that, that allows you to be prepared. And of course, they do know that they will be there for a long time. So, and astronauts and cosmonauts are highly driven individuals. They always want to learn. They are continuously learning something because in space, there are um, some of them, not even 5% of their entire career of their working time. So they're doing, you know, they're supporting the crew on the ground, they're supporting the research, they do administration, they do public speaking and so on. So they, they're continuously learning, they're learning languages. So they all prepare, they have a list, to-do list that always wanted to do. And uh, they will take that with them on the long duration mission. So 
I don't think for people who are striving forth, <laughs> have the problem of being bored. There is there always something for them, you know, they're leaving with the list of things I want to do when I have a moment. Yeah, and I think that's going to be really important. If we're going to send, if we're going to send people all the way to Mars, you don't want them going stir crazy on the way and, and you know, going postal in a spaceship. I think that would be an ultimate disaster. But on that front, Chris, you've got this wonderful 500-year plan for the human race, but let's break it down for everyone. How long do you think before we go to Mars and how long is it going to take us to get there? So I'm hoping that, you know, some of the missions I talked about earlier on this podcast is that, you know, we might be there within 10 years. Actually, uh, China's stated they want to get there by 2031 or 33. NASA's saying 2035, maybe 37. But it all should be within the next 10 to 15 years if, if all goes according to plan. Of course, Mars is far and it's difficult, but it is possible to get there and hopefully return back. We, um, you know, I think the 500-year plan, I just published a book this year. It's called The Next 500 Years which is about uh, not just the missions that we've done so far, but also engineering life to reach those new worlds of, you know, one of the therapies I mentioned briefly is even epigenetic therapies where you turn genes on in advance of a threat like radiation, uh, which is being tried uh, right now in, in mice and in cells, but could be done in humans. But I also underscore a lot of the, the genetic engineering trials that are happening today in humans for uh, targeted work with CRISPR therapies where you can actually uh, cure beta thalassemia or sickle cell disease with modifications to, you know, to do, you know, somatic tissues in your body or, you know, not your egg or sperm, but just curing a disease in a body today. So I think given a lot of technologies, you know, that, you know, some clinical trials we've helped with and that are elsewhere, it is really important to imagine a future that is, if it's 10 or 20 years from now, you could imagine other ways to keep astronauts safe. Uh, And I argue that in the book, ethically, you might have to, because if the alternative is we send people to Mars, but they won't survive because there's too much radiation, not enough resources, but if we could give them a little bit of a boost internally as well as externally, maybe we should consider that. It's kind of the thesis of the book. And also it's an argument that we have to explore other places in the universe because we're the only species with an awareness of extinction. So we're the only ones that can prevent extinction anywhere in the universe. As far as we know, it's just us. So I think it is, gives us a duty for our species to actually uh, protect other species uh, as well as, our, as ourselves. But uh, but in the next five years, it'll be in the next 10 to 20, it'll be probably getting to Mars. And then uh, with some of those engineering tricks, could maybe get up to the other planets in the solar system by 2150. The goal at the end of 500 years is to know enough biology and science and engineering to build a generation ship so we could get towards another star and eventually have a ha- uh, planet in a habitable zone, get out to another solar system is the goal of the plan. And I just detail all the, all the technology and lessons we've learned from previous missions. Plus at the end of the book is a list of every planet, an exoplanet that we could possibly go to today. That's a few parsecs away. So it's not too far. Uh, and there was, and then if it ends with the end of the universe, the last of it. So I ended uh, what would happen at the end of the universe is the last chapter, which was kind of depressing, but uh, we don't know. It's a long ways away. We've got trillions of years, but it's a long ways away. I, li- I like the forward planning that you're, you're going with there, though. It's important to think big. Yes. <laughs> but if we're going to go to Mars, it's going to be a long trip. Ian's already mentioned that uh, the crews that go on these missions have this sort of, you know, lifelong to-do list of things that they want to do. So, you know, they're not, potentially likely to get bored on a longer mission they can you know learn french or whatever it is that they've always wanted to do play the sitar um mm-hmm. uh, henrik this is a question for you so it's sort of linked to neurodegeneration do you think on these longer space missions there's gonna be there's always this phrase use it or lose it in terms of your brain health do you think that's going to be important in terms of longer missions if you just sit around in a spaceship and do nothing and don't learn the sitar do you think your brain's just going to deteriorate quicker than it would if you were just sitting around on 
Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's uh, I mean, that's, use it or lose it is a bit uh, harsh perhaps, but it's definitely something we, we, we know a lot about. And uh, I, I, uh, I think Ia has a lot to, to comment here also, but I think that it, having a meaningful time on that spaceship would, will be essential, uh, definitely. And I think finding things to do on that long mission would be, I, I would love it. I've, somebody shut me in a box for six months and said, you can do whatever you want. I would have a fabulous time. Um, but yeah, I've got a question for you on sort of the long periods of boredom and brain health and things. Do we think, so Chris has already mentioned that we've got these sort of dairy gods in terms of health and fitness and all that kind of things, nutritionally aware and you know, super brainy people that we're, we're sending on these missions. Are there, is there a specific type of emotional or psychological personality type that we need to think about sending on longer term space missions? This is a, a very well debated topic and question. <laughs> in like Myers-Briggs type analysis or what kind of person? Yeah, what do you mean? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah, well, I found in my experience, I've selected over thousands of, well, over thousands of people uh, for Emirates Airlines and I traveled pretty much on every flight that they had to the country because they're selecting or we were selecting from the culture that they were flying to. So they had to be on board a person who culturally grew up there and spoke the language in a native way. So they understood the peculiarities because, of course, we're talking about um, Muslim countries and how you serve the food is a big deal. And of course, in flight, a lot of the activities that do happen uh, is actually about serving food and being respectful to others. Mm. And um, yeah. so I found that when you're selecting cabin crew and people who flourish later, they're able to distinguish um, and adapt to do two different environments. So for example, if I tell them, would you please complete this questionnaire as if you are in a work environment? And then I would say, okay, now after a period of time or even soon after, would you please complete this as if you are with family and you would get different scores, okay? And that's normal and that's not cheating. That's not, it's just how we adapt and what we are comfortable to open up. And some people who are introverts might actually you know, go on the same spectrum, like we're all in the spectrum somewhere, right? So it's just what we are exerting um, in front of others, or when we're alone, we are secluding and, and other parts of us come out when we're in friendship and more relaxed. And also there is expectation, cultural expectations, and that's all reflected. So when we were doing different cultures, so for example, for Thailand, and if you compare Thailand and Ireland, <laughs> They were, you know, the, the people were expectation on how they should be at work were absolutely opposite. <laughs> and uh, if you are interviewing them, because the, the, we did not ever, you know, down selected just on the questionnaire, because that was becoming more and more obvious that people are different to what they're saying, you know, on, on the questionnaire. They want to be liked, that's natural. So once you are in the interview and you're speaking with individuals and you say, okay, can you give me an example when this happened? Because I'm not sure how to interpret, for example, that quality or, or, or what they're describing. It doesn't seem to me because I've observed many people, you know, in situations and they do, uh, we do like team play and I'm watching and I'm checking is the data there or not. So there's a lot of observational skill and, and uh, the, the, 
the expectation on how you behave in front of another person is so different. And also, if you go to Thai people who were the military pilots, they would be so different in how they command the crew and how they, uh, uh, how they respect superiors. And all of that culture had to be changed as well um, through training. So crew resource management is something has now has been um, widely used in medicine as well. So it, it is a question that I don't think has the right answer. Of course, these are highly striving individuals and you will see them succeed and they know how to position themselves. And uh, But I think the most uh, admiring quality and the one that works on International Space Station specifically is that it's the person is willing to take a commanding position as well as following position because the situation change and the expert might be not the commander and, and, and they are aware of that. So that capability and that ability to, to change in, depending on the situation is what uh, I would be looking for. Yeah, so a high degree of sort of self-awareness and the ability to work well within a team as well as sort of independently, I think, would be important. Lead and follow. And you should yeah, be able to intuitively exactly. switch when, yeah. you know, so, so that's about, the, I think, a key feature. And I think that's, that's something that it, someone like yourself who's very experienced in sort of watching crews develop I think that's that's going to be the way to sort of pick people going forward but Chris you you did the twin studies I know it's a tiny n it's an n of one but did you notice and did you make any sort of psychological observations between the, the the guy that was in space and the guy that was on earth were there was there anything that sort of struck you in terms of their experience well, they're identical twins, so they're very similar in a lot of ways, but they also, you know, and they're very competitive, but they, of course, are different. And actually, one of the twins, uh, when playing the cognitive game that was developed by uh, Dr. Matthias Bosner at UPenn, actually learned how to trick the game after a while. So we could see that even how they, over the course of two and a half years, and one of those years was in space for one of them, you could see how they learned the games differently. And they're, so their behavior was... I mean, they're very similar people. They're both astronauts. Could you imagine being at a, like a Christmas party and saying, oh, well, both my sons are astronauts. And like people are like, no, 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 really, they are. They both are. So they're both very similar, both very driven, but they, um, they respond even to cognitive tests and games uh, differently over time. So we think, um, you know, and also genetically and epigenetically, they're slightly different. Uh, actually, they're more different every day that passes than they were the day before. So this uh, seems to apply a little bit cognitively as well. But for personality type, I think they're both very similar broadly. Uh, but how they learn is, is a little bit different for each of them. I think going into space for long periods of time, having that kind of, like you said at the beginning, having the biological data and matching it up with the cognitive data is going to be really, really fascinating. So in terms of um, just briefly, we're going to sort of come to the last couple of hazards. Um, we've gone through radiation and gravity, and this is a hostile and isolated environment. But first, we're going to talk something, uh, talk about something which is very close to my heart because I'm a cereal snacker and I love cake. Um, so yeah, I'm going to start with a question for you. If how important is food in keeping the crew happy and focused? And you mentioned at the beginning, it's like having a head cold. So presumably their taste buds are not going to be, you know, the same. And is this going to have a, a massive impact on the crew? Uh, totally. Absolutely. The food has impacts us all the time. And um, uh, there are special occasions that are planned 
uh, and there are surprises planned as well. <laughs> so, for example, um, I will talk about the Mars 500 um, because it was a very good example. So the crew had access for a period of time to a specifically directed diet for, you know, to understanding nutrition and its effects and performance. And then they had an opportunity to eat what they want and what they like. And then what happened is that they ran out uh, of, so we had a Chinese um, representative on the crew and there was a, a celebration um, that was specific to him. I think it was either Chinese year or his birthday. And he was so desperate to have noodles and there were none, there were no noodles. There were absolutely no noodles, but the crew <laughs> found and they stashed specifically for that spaghetti and made it <laughs> as similar <laughs> to his, uh, you know, kind of looking, look like meal. Yeah. And that was such a big boost to him. And he talked about it too. I do think if, if, if you're so looking forward, it's like living in another country when you miss the foods from your home country and, and then getting to have them is suddenly becomes what well, I lived in Germany for a while and I missed Yorkshire puddings and it's just not something that you get in any other country other than the UK and we had to explain what Yorkshire puddings were to many many people and Yorkshire pudding is not that exciting to eat but when you haven't had it for a year it's it's very exciting and I can imagine people in space experiencing the same kind of thing uh so Chris on that front if we've got all of this sort of different diet, everything's freeze-dried. They're not going to be getting a great deal of fresh fruit and vegetable, I assume. Do you know anything about how that's going to affect their microbiome? It definitely, you know, we are what we eat. And so we know that uh, we can actually see uh, fragments of even some of the food that they were eating in their saliva when we sequenced the DNA of their saliva. So we could see what uh, didn't all get swallowed yet. It's interesting things like that. We can see also for their stool and um, it's particularly their, their gut microbiome, we can see changes in the diversity of the organisms there. And also it's particular ratios of two kinds of species called firmicutes to bacteroides we saw shifted. So we know that there's, there's differences uh, that are changing, but we haven't yet done a really interesting experiment where you give the exact same food to all the astronauts and then look at the difference. Uh, some of this has been done for diabetes studies where you can say, okay, we're giving you an isocaloric meal. We know exactly what's in it. You all take the same meal and then we measure before and after. So we haven't, that study's not been done yet. So we don't know how much of a factor it is for space, but we know it's definitely a factor on earth. And so uh, by extension, it's very likely to be, you know, one of the mediating factors of microbiome health. And so uh, there, you know, for example, like probiotics uh, or yogurt are kind of hard to come by in space, but, you know, lyophilized or dried down probiotics are some you could definitely bring up there and use, but haven't been tried yet. Well, you mentioned that collecting stool samples and you can do urine samples and saliva samples. Do you think part of the, not necessarily the problem, but part of the thing we need to think about going forward and, and what do you know about this is, are we lacking tools to do this kind of investigation in space and, and are people thinking about developing them? We, we, uh, we have been lacking them for a while. We actually worked with Kate Rubens and others in 2016, the first DNA sequencing in space. So you cannot take a sample, grab it and sequence all the nucleic acids, the DNA and the RNA right out of it. So it isn't, we're now entering this era where you can have genomics in space and quickly, you know, take a sample, whether it's a weird microbe growing on the walls of the space station or on your skin, grab it, extract it, and then sequence it and, and find the answer right away of what's there. So it was, it was an exciting mission to be a part of in 2016. We're, we're replicating this now 
uh, again, this year to do even more uh, sequencing of other things, not just microbes, but also human DNA. So it is, um, it, 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 uh, there's new tools up there, which is pretty cool that you can, as a geneticist, it's great to suddenly have all these tools available in space. And again, genomics in space just sounds so much cooler than just genomics. <laughs> You know, it's cool already, but yes, it does. I agree. I agree. I'm going to, I'm going to leave you with that belief. I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to jump on board that one because I'm not a geneticist and I always struggled with it as an undergrad, but I'm going to, I'm going to hop back very briefly to something you said right at the beginning. So the, the data you've got at the moment is, is from these sort of demigod, very healthy, very, you know, IQ, unique groups of people. Do we think how much do you trust the data that we have now or the data that you have now? Do you think it's a skewed population sample? And do you think your N is a bit like your N for the twin study was essentially one. Do you think your N, some of these is a bit small and skewed? Yeah, that's always it's the biggest challenge. And uh, it's called the big, the N problem and sample size problem is, is the continual problem for all of space flight. Uh, and so this is, but that's true for any investigational drug you want to try on um, a small population for a rare disease. You might only have 20 of them and you try what you, what you know, based on rationally designed therapies or treatments and you go for it. And that's what we're doing very much here. So we, as an N of two, I guess, because we had one case, one control for the twin study. But, but what we did is the first thing we did is we took all the molecular and genetic data and compared it to every other patient we've looked at at the hospital. So, you know, looked any context of a cytokine or an inflammation marker that would spike. We look at how often that occurred across 200,000 patients from hospitals uh, we have in New York. So it's easy to, the best thing to do when you don't have data is to go get as much data that's as close to it as you can. So we, that's what we did for the twin study and for other studies is to go as deep of a dive and as longitudinal of a dive on the individual astronauts, and then also compare it broadly to as much other data from humans. And even from animals, there's a project in NASA called Gene Lab, where it's every animal that's ever been flown in space. If there's been any experiments or molecular data, you can download it, play with the data. It's all open for anyone to play with. So uh, that's another thing we compare. Compared to the, the, the mice that fly up and are in zero G and they don't know how to walk, but they float around and we, we dissect some of those mice when they land back on Earth as well. I think what we've established is that space travel is interesting, potentially a little bit dangerous, but not dangerous enough to not do it. So we're going to round everything off with some big picture questions for you guys. So, um, yeah, I'm going to start with you. What do you think is the most important thing to think about in terms of the long-term effects of space travel on brain health? And are there any great resources that you can point our early career researcher listeners to who might be interested in learning more? I think it's so important that we explore space outside through space within. And as I'm looking through, you know, the current situation and lockdowns that we've experienced for the last two years, you can see that people have gravitated to exploring what happens within, given the external circumstance. And I think people like never before experienced what it is like to be isolated. And of course, they have not chosen to do that like the crew, but uh, I have had a lot of insight for people who have struggled through isolation, through understanding on why the crew do that on purpose, you know, and uh, what works for them and what kind of things that they enjoy doing despite the circumstance. So it is about the world within, the space within, in order to us to be able to go and explore space, the outer space. So I think there's a massive work in, from psychology and well-being and balancing 
our perception because our inner world colors the outer world. I think that's that's surprisingly deep. And Chris mentioned earlier Myers Briggs, and I'm very firmly in the INTJ camp, and I have no issue being shut in a room for weeks on my own. So I would quite enjoy going to space, I think. <laughs> um, Chris, same question for you. What do you think is the most important thing to think about in terms of brain health and general health when long thinking about long-term space missions? I think it's you know, being able to have as many things as passively measured as possible. So we have a lot of active tests, blood draws, cognitive tests, but we want to, we were expanding more to get things that are wearable devices or things that you don't have to ask someone uh, how they're doing. You can sometimes infer it and measure it. And it's also more reliable data. So I think we've already begun deploying a lot more of them and more is that more of that's coming. And then just continue to do as many of the uh, molecular measures we can, because when, you know, when you don't know where to look in the body, the best place is to look everywhere you can. If you're looking for what's changing and what's important and what's the high risk or medium or low risk places. So I think, um, you know, continuing a lot more of the work that, that we and others have done and then to do this for many, many more astronauts uh, and also analog missions on Earth are helpful. Animal models are helpful. You know, really even you know, learning from any place we can from other clinical trials is, is helpful. So I think all, all that and, and anything else as well. So Henrik, same question to you. What do you think is the most important thing to think about? I really would like to explore this brain uh, fluid dynamics uh, problem more. It's very concrete. It's it's not, um, uh, and it's a small part of the whole thing. But I would, we have uh, methods to do it, uh, both of course with brain imaging, but that will happen after um, uh, the, the, the space flight. Of course, one could also figure out uh, interesting things of uh, recording such um, data also in um, uh, space. But then uh, th these types of simple blood uh, biomarkers of um, uh, brain fluid dynamics and uh, neuronal injury to find out uh, if this depends on circadian rhythm, microgravity, I shouldn't say that anymore, <laughs> but anyhow, and, and or... Um, uh, if this, uh, if some people are more or less vulnerable to this, um, I would be very keen. I think that's a perfect PhD student project, actually, uh, <laughs> if we collaborate uh, on this. And uh, of course, then one needs to link it with brain function and all the things that you, you talked about. Yeah, and uh, uh, the devices you mentioned, Chris. It's, uh, it could be such an exciting uh, PhD student project. A little bit high risk, but very exciting. Well, there's some there's some wonderful live one knockout mice that, you know, have altered lymphatic function. I reckon we just send a cohort of them into space with the next set of astronauts and see what happens to them. But Yvonne, we need to make a mouse which is um, has a super um, uh, lymphatic system. We need to remove fluid from brain while you're mm -hmm. in space and how to do that uh, more efficiently. Th that is what is needed. Extra pumps, I think. Extra pumps, opening up the aquaporins. <laughs> Exactly. Whether how we do that is another question. That's again, like you say, that's the next PhD project. I'm going to jump in on that one and say I was here when you had the idea. Uh, so one final question, knowing all we've discussed and all we've talked about in terms of space travel, if NASA called you tomorrow, Henrik, I'm going to start with you because you're on my screen. If NASA called you tomorrow and invited you to go to Mars, would you go? I would never do that. Never in my life. I am so uh, stuck to Earth. I, I, uh, I, I think Ia would single me out as a person not to put on a space uh, in a uh, on a spaceship. Excellent. I love that. You're very self-aware. Well, Ia, if if Henrik's definitely not going, do you know yourself well enough? Would you go? I'm so curious. I'd like to go. 
I think that that would be my answer too. I'm genuinely, I just want to see what it's like. Yeah, I think the, of course, the family is always the factor. So I have young children and I think that would be a factor for me. But yeah, leaving them I for periods of time. Yeah, I, I would definitely go in orbit and uh, I don't know why they haven't had the psychologist up. I have my mm. suspicions yeah. <laughs> that we will ask too many questions that are uncomfortable. Yeah, they're going to be worried. Like to they're worried that you're sat in the corner watching them all the time. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I think it's important. And um, I just wanted to add to Chris's comment about collecting data non-invasively. I think it's so vital because the crew gets so tired of being asked yeah. and probed and questioned. And the tool yeah. that we're using on voice analysis, which is uh, to detect fatigue, is was exactly drawn from that, is not to be invasive and just picking up on something they do all the time. So I think more and more of these tools are coming up and that will assist us in understanding their well-being. But I do think that's a very strong argument for having a psychologist up there passively mm-hmm. them in the corner. And that way you don't have to ask the questions. You can just sit and make little notes and not tell them what you're writing. Uh, Chris, same question to you. You Would you go to space on a long space mission? 100% go right away. Uh, my family would prefer I wait a few day, a few years. Our daughter is 11, so maybe when she's 18, if I could wait a little bit. But because uh, I wouldn't want to, that'd be a, a mean thing to do to die as a father for a young daughter. But I think if um, you could wait a little bit, I'd definitely go then and would like to go now. Yeah. I like the fact that Henrik has just said it flat out. No, I'm not going to space. I'm having none of it. I just would be quite curious. I'm on Ia's side, though. I think I'd quite like to go up to the International Space Station for a bit of a play around. I'll take mice with me. Um, and then I don't think I'd be so keen to go all the way to Mars. I do. I don't have any plans to learn the sitar. So I think I might go a bit crazy, but you never know. It might be fun. So thank you ever so much, everyone, for joining me today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you very much. So I'd like to thank today's guests, Professor Christopher Mason, Professor Henrik Zetterberg, and Dr. Ia Whiteley. You've been listening to the Dementia Research Podcast. If you like what you heard today, go back and browse through our archives. Don't forget to like and subscribe at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I've been your host for the day, Yvonne Couch, reminding you to stay safe and keep researching. Supporting early career researchers throughout the world and across the galaxy.